This week on the Backtable Podcast. There have been people that have said, you know, why are you wasting your time with this? You know, thrombectomy is the future. Every device is going to be a thrombectomy device. And, you know, we have to just sort of trust our gut and trust our instinct that lytics work. Uh, they have a place in this field and and that, you know, the pendulum is probably going to swing back a little bit towards lytics, you know, as newer devices, better devices come out, more data is generated. The data is just going to explode in the next few years. And, you know, we think because of that, the craze to develop more and more and more thrombectomy devices may get cooled off just a little bit. So, you know, we, we want to position ourselves to have sort of the best lytic device that can actually capture this data in a way that can add to both sides of the equation. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. First, a brief message from our sponsor. A decade ago, Rapid AI harnessed AI to revolutionize stroke care. Now they are bringing that same innovation to aneurysm and pulmonary embolism. This AI-powered, clinically-driven workflow platform enables care teams to accelerate triage and treatment decisions and improve operational efficiency to achieve better patient outcomes. Rapid AI, where AI meets patient care. Now, back to the show. Today, we have a great episode. This is going to be both on the vascular and interventional show as well as the innovation show because we have a couple of innovators in the treatment of PE, pulmonary embolism. And with us today, we have the co-founders of Flow Medical. We have Osman Ahmed and Jonathan Paul from University of Chicago. Welcome, guys. Hey, Aaron. Thanks a lot. Excited to be here. Yeah, thanks, Aaron. Really appreciate the invitation. So lots to talk about here, lots to unpack. But first, for our audience who aren't familiar with either of you, one's an interventional cardiologist, one's an interventional radiologist. You guys teamed up. Tell us a little bit about your background, and I want you to tell us a little bit about how you guys met. Was it via PERT team? That's what I would assume. But Jonathan, I'm going to start with you. Sure. Sounds good. I kind of want to say we met on a dating app because it kind of feels like we're married at this <laughs> point. But, uh, you know, Oz and I uh, come from different backgrounds. You know, as you had mentioned, Oz is an interventional radiologist. I'm an interventional cardiologist. Oz came to the University of Chicago several years ago, you know, just a couple of years after we had started working on a PERT program here. So we had been sort of in the early stages of developing our PERT. And, uh, you know, Oz came to U of C with a lot of experience, you know, in the in the PE and the VTE space. So we just thought it made sense to work together rather than to try to compete for cases and try to, you know, have two separate programs. We thought that we could be more effective and take better care of our patients if we if we just did it together. So we kind of decided to take a collaborative approach and do cases together, send each other cases, um, you know, use each other's expertise to try to build the program rather than try to have sort of two separate competing programs. Great. Thanks, Jonathan. Yeah. Oz, tell us a little bit about, I thought you trained at University of Chicago, no? Do you train elsewhere? I did. Yeah. So I did my residency at, at UChicago and then um, I went on to fellowship at Stanford. Then I joined Rush for three years, which is a fantastic program, as JP sort of alluded to, you know, on the job training, did a ton of arterial work, but also did a ton of VTE work, which was sort of my passion. And so when I came to UChicago, a little bit nervous because you didn't really have an formally established VTE sort of program. And that was one of the reasons why I wanted to come. And as JP alluded to, it was it really was harmonious in the sense that JP, was, especially as the PERT director, was very welcoming and, and very collaborative. And, and we've just run with that, to be honest with you. It's, I think as we'll talk more, you'll see that that's now obviously extended outside of just our clinical interests. 
Yeah. And how many docs, both on IR and IC side, are part of your PER team? Basically, what we decided to do was essentially combine and, and create what we call a comprehensive venous thromboembolism program. And so as part of that program, essentially, we've sort of split up DVT and PE work for the most part. So, you know, aside from myself, who, who I'll join JP oftentimes for PE cases, cardiology will, will do most of the PE work and we'll do most of the DVT work. And then we'll sort of meet in the middle for, for right heart stuff and complex DVT or complex PE stuff. Yeah, I was going to just add to that, you know, all of our operators in cardiology are, are trained to do pulmonary, you know, embolism procedures. And, you know, Oz's colleagues in IR obviously are all, all well-trained in doing endovascular work and, and venous work. But both of us sort of drive the program and try to bring new new devices and new innovations to the institution. But we really do think, you know, to be successful as a program, it can't just be Oz on the IR side and myself on the cardiology side. It really has to be everybody kind of buying in. So, we do our best to kind of include everybody that wants to be involved in the program and, and try to make it as big and collaborative as possible. I assume you guys are involved in the trainees with it just so that they can learn from that experience and maybe go out and form their own PERT teams. Yeah, exactly. Oz and I were just talking about actually how we should try to create some sort of combined rotation where we could have, you know, IR fellows come and rotate in the cath lab and, and vice versa, because, you know, we joke about this, but there's lots of tools and catheters that I'd never heard of before I started joining Oz in, in the IR lab. And and I think that's made me better and at least made me understand kind of what they do and how how good these guys are at doing these procedures. But no, I think we try our best to have each other's trainees come and, and join whenever they're you know interested and available to do so. Yeah, I nearly had a heart attack when he said he had never heard of a compy. So uh, there, was a, there was a lot of teaching that had to be done. <laughs> Well, the same goes on the on the other way, because like, you know, John, you guys have so many different curves and names. And so when I'm working in a mixed lab, oftentimes the tech will be like, hey, I think this will work for you. And I'll learn about a new catheter, you know, if I can't get into like a SMA or celiac or something. Yeah. A lot of the coronary catheters, obviously they're named after cardiologists. So you guys have never heard of them. And then, you know, we have uh, all of the specialized curves in, in radiology that are probably named after the founding fathers and mothers of IR. So no, you're totally right. Yeah. Yeah. And and we've had some of those guys on. We had Dave Kumpy on. We had, uh, we're actually going to have Tom Sauce on the show, do some historical stuff. Well, thanks for that background, guys. For our audience, what we're going to focus on is really what you guys saw as a need out there, right? A need for innovation in this space. Uh, we've seen some, you know, recent products that have come about that have really changed the space significantly. You know, the Nari device, of course, is something that uh, we're seeing all over social media. We're hearing people talk about it. We're seeing a lot of clap porn and whatnot. But you guys, it sounds like had a different approach. You know, I wanted to get that story out and, and hear more about it, even though you're still preclinical. So I want you guys to start with maybe just telling us like, what was the need that you saw and where did the idea come from? I'll start with you, John. Yeah, you know, absolutely. This is kind of where where it all started for us is that we we saw such extreme, exciting growth in this space. You know, in the last five years, you know, you'd mentioned Anari and, and some other companies coming along in the thrombectomy space. And there's just been this explosive interest and explosive growth in endovascular treatment, you know, of pulmonary embolism. And it's really exceeded the data in a way. You know, it's gone so fast that devices have been put on the market and developed really faster than we can even understand how they should be used. And, you know, historically, we know that, you know, lytics have been sort of the mainstay of therapy for pulmonary embolism and a lot of venous thromboembolic diseases. 
But the devices really in the Lytic space hadn't really changed much in, in the past 10, 20 years. You know, we've been using the same sorts of, of Lytic infusion catheters, whether it's ultrasound assisted or just traditional infusion catheters. However, you know, in the thrombectomy space, there's been incredible innovation and growth. So as operators, Oz and I sort of felt in a way it was sort of our responsibility as the people that were doing these cases that we needed to help move this forward and, and start thinking about how we can improve upon thrombolytic therapy for, for these venous problems. Are either you guys engineers or background in engineering? No, neither of us are. So we decided that this is something we wanted to do, but we, we didn't have a clue how to do it. We decided that we're going to bring together a team and maybe Oz can talk a little bit about how we came upon that team and, and started to make this more than just an idea. Yeah, Oz, like where'd you guys start? Like, I'm sure you guys are spitballing ideas back and forth, but once you had that idea, where did you go? Yeah, that's a great question. So our cocktail napkin story essentially was JP and I both had gotten our first dose of the vaccine, COVID vaccine. We sat down at Panera Bread and we were having basically a conversation just like we're having right now. And we said, you know, who better than us, honestly, as physicians, as experts in VTE to design a device that would, you know, essentially advance the science or address the issues. And so literally on a napkin, we still have that napkin and we're hoping that once we're, uh, you know, valued at $10 billion, we'll, you know, we can auction off that napkin. But, um, you know, we wrote down an idea for a device and then we essentially, you know, really heavily leaned on the University of Chicago's entrepreneurial sort of programs that they have and happy to sort of talk about that in detail. But through those programs, we essentially did some market research and then utilized some of our own funding, our internal sort of research funding to subcontract with an engineering firm to sort of really put from pen to paper an actual design for a device that could theoretically be made. And, you know, since then, we've been working with that firm. We've been, you know, again, raising funds and all that sort of stuff to design prototypes. And that's sort of where we are in a nutshell. Yeah, I think Oz and I had no sort of real idea how difficult it was going to be. We sort of thought, oh, it's, you know, this will be no big deal. We can, you know, we'll hire an engineering firm. We'll, we'll get some catheter stuff. We'll, we'll show them our, our designs and they'll make it for us. And, you know, six months, we'll, we'll have a prototype and we can go ahead and test it. But certainly it's been much more complicated than that. I, I sort of joke with Oz that I think it may have been a side effect of the vaccine, maybe thinking we had a little brain fog, maybe thinking, you know, this was going to be a little bit easier than, than it actually has been. But, but no, it's been, it's been a journey for sure. So here we are two years later, you had an engineering firm, you had University of Chicago's resources, and I do want to talk about that in a minute and sort of how that works. But first, tell us about the idea itself, like the first prototype. What did it look like? What did it do? How is it different from what's on the market? So, you know, as I'd mentioned, Aaron, what, what we really wanted to do was create the next generation of CDT devices. And we certainly know that the devices that have been used for many years now are effective at lysing clot in smaller vessels. They work well for arterial thrombosis, but none of them were really designed to work in large, you know, large venous structures, in particular, you know, IVC pulmonary arteries. And so what we wanted to do was create a device that was specifically designed for use in large venous structures. And so we thought, okay, so what are the things that we really need to know or, or things that we need to have a device like this to be used in large venous structures? And so, okay, maybe it's, um, you know, the ability to navigate the device. So, you know, we decided, okay, let's create a steerable tip so we can move this thing where we want it to go in the complex pulmonary vascular tree. Okay, let's have the ability to, you know, do pulmonary angiograms so that we can visualize as we're trying to navigate. 
first we kind of decided we were going to try to create sort of an all-in-one device where we could do everything. But as we sort of moved along, we realized really that the novelty and the true value of a pulmonary embolism specific device was actually, how do we know not only how to place this device, but when to actually stop infusing the drug. And that's really where we've been focusing our efforts is trying to create a device that gives us feedback that allows us to sort of know in real time when the lytic has actually worked. Because we all know that TPA has a pretty good safety profile, but you know, as you increase the dose of TPA, the, the risk of bleeding certainly goes up. And we wanted to be able to create a device and create a procedure where we can give a very specific amount of TPA for each individual patient. And we don't want to be guessing, you know, I think for too long now in this field, we've been relying on what did I do for the last case or the last five cases and say, you know, last time I did, you know, 12 milligrams of TPA over overnight and it worked pretty well. The patient did fine. Uh, we sent him home in a few days. We want to really know, you know, based on the chronicity of the clot and the other comorbidities of the patient, what's the exact dose of TPA that we need to get the pressure down to where we want it to be? So we decided to create a device that has feedback and we placed sensors inside the catheter to sort of give us the ability to monitor pressures in real time, minute by minute, you know, as the lytic is going in so that we can in some way set up either a pre-specified cutoff for the drop in pressure or, or whatever criteria it may be that the physician wants to use to say, okay, we've reached that endpoint, let's stop the lytic. And it might be honestly one hour it might be 24 hours. And, and we think it's going to be very much dependent on the particular patient and not just, you know, what did we do last time? So from the website, it says data-driven. So it sounds like what you're getting at is, I, I imagine you're going to be collecting data via these sensors, patient by patient. Will there be an AI component to it where you're able to take these data sets and then apply them to treatment of future patients? Yeah. In short, that's the dream, I would say. That's the ultimate goal I think as you're sort of alluding to, which is personalized medicine, you know, like as JP said, you know, every person is going to need a specific amount of lytic and hopefully not one drop more, not one drop less because, you know, there's ramifications to both of those. And so we, we hope as this sort of develops that there would be a component of big data to it, right? And like you said, being able to learn from all the information we collect, I think of it like my Tesla, right? Like I'm driving it, it's sending all this data to Elon and, and the company and and then they're going to design their algorithms to, you know, make the car even safer. So that's sort of how we hopefully sort of foresee this. That sounds amazing. And, you know, like you said, like thrombectomy is not appropriate for every patient, right? And there is still a big role for lytics, especially if it's something that's way more, I guess, cost effective or, you know, not so cost prohibitive because the devices, even though they seem to work, are still very expensive. Are you taking costs into consideration when, when creating this? Is it something that you are trying to keep cost-effective? Yeah, it's funny. Like you said, we're not engineers and we're certainly not business people. I do have an economics degree, uh, shockingly. But other than that, that whole business side of this, and people ask about this all the time, you know, there's a the medicine side. that That's the side that we just talked about right now, where as experts in this, we sit down, we geek out over what the perfect device would look like. But then now there's this whole second world of, well, now if you want to make a device that actually you're going to bring to market, you have to make money on it. It has to be viable, has to be, be able to be made cheaply and then also be able to be sold at a profit. So we have to take into account all those variables. And to answer your question in short, 
yes, we, we're trying to make this cost effective, trying to make it obviously on par with other sort of devices, specifically thrombolytic devices, but still offer all these benefits, added benefits is, is what we're sort of weighing and we're going through. And, and honestly, we're living it right now. We're learning all that as we go. We, we do have a chief business officer that we've hired um, and she's been fantastic and been very helpful. Aside from the, our, our advisors as well, we have, we have board members and people really that are much more experienced and smarter than us advising us. Yeah. And, and so just kind of take one little small step back. You could have just created a device and sold it to a company, right? But how did you decide to, to actually form a company around this innovation? Did you guys actually sit down and talk about that or was it just a no-brainer? Oh, we're just going to create a company. Yeah, no. I mean, this is this is really where I think the University of Chicago in particular has come in for us to learn about this whole process. You know, University of Chicago has some really interesting programs for non-business, you know, entrepreneurs or people that want to get into innovation and in medicine in particular and healthcare. And they've made a number of different courses and programs available to us. You know, we started off with a program called iCore, which is a an NIH sponsored program that basically allows people that think they have a really good idea to actually do what we call customer discovery, to sort of learn whether or not you think that your amazing idea is actually a good idea. So you talk to, you know, a number of different users, whether it's physicians or it might be pharmaceutical or medical device executives or, or whoever it may be. You talk to all these people, you do a ton of interviews, and you basically just try to validate whether your idea is actually something that's going to be viable. So that's the first step. We then moved to a different program which the University of Chicago calls the Compass Accelerator Program, which basically is for people that have an idea that, that's sort of viable, that they think they can turn into a business. And you sort of learn what are the different pathways to go. You can do licensing, like you said, Aaron, where you basically take your idea, you move it as far as you want to go, but then you sort of want to just get back to your day job and, and you know do cases and be a physician. You don't really want to get into the business side of things. That's a very good option for a lot of people. Oz and I are, you know, young and maybe stupid, and we decided, well, let's let's take this farther and see if we can make this into a real company. And and so University of Chicago was helpful setting us up with advisors and mentors and a lot of other people to sort of guide us, you know, in all different aspects of this, regulatory, legal, obviously the engineering side of things, fundraising, all these important things that we hadn't really considered too much about, sort of guiding us through each step of things, intellectual property and so on and so forth. So I think without that, you know, to be honest, Oz and I probably would have just licensed this to somebody or given it up because it's just really too overwhelming, I think, to try to take on without all those other sorts of pieces of the puzzle. Yeah, but what a great opportunity, you know? I mean, like you said, you're fortunate to have University of Chicago that has these resources available to you and you're learning so much going through this, you know, that us docs don't really get to. I mean, I'm always contemplating doing an MBA just get some foundation of business because we realize how oblivious we are, especially out in private practice. It's a part of medicine that we need to do a better job of because I think innovation and in just in general would be accelerated if physicians and people, you know, with much better ideas than us actually thought, well, I could actually do this and I can take this idea and make it into something. And, you know, if you just have a little bit of background and, and resources to, to sort of know where to go, I think people would probably be more interested in taking their ideas forward. Yeah. And so let's talk about that a little bit because we've had Fred Lee on before to talk about, you know, he's started New Wave and then I don't know if he started Histosonics, but he's participated in Histosonics. But, you know, he told the whole New Wave story to us and how much support he got, how they were able to find the right people. And it sounds like you guys have been fortunate with that as well. But like, I'm always curious to know 
when a private company forms out of an academic center, how does it work with like equity? You know, do you take outside investors or does it all come from the institution itself? Oz, can you tell us a little bit about that process? You know, we're living it right now. So we're still going through that process. And I sort of liken it to you, Chicago is like our parents and we're sort of growing up and ready to move out of the house. And there's that little awkward of like, oh, where are you going to live or how are we going to break up here? So I think for us, probably the a major milestone was to sort of establish the company, you know, and, and sort of no longer rely on our parents, you know, no longer rely on you, Chicago, for, for sort of the support. But it also sort of planted our flag that, hey, we're actually doing this and we're going to, you know, go for it. And as far as equity and all that sort of stuff goes, again, we prior to forming the company, we actually utilized the University of Chicago uh, Innovation Law Clinic, which essentially is a free law clinic that helped us establish our governance and all that sort of stuff. But as far as licensing the the IP back from the university, we're in that process right now. But in general, I hope I don't regret saying this, but the university wants us to succeed. They wouldn't have put all this effort in helping us do this to like, you know, then just say, no, we don't want you to have your company. So we're, we're in that process right now. And, and we don't foresee anything yet so far that would make this contentious. So I guess I'll leave it at that. Yeah, and I think it's different at different institutions too. You know, certainly places that have a lot of engineering and a lot of devices and things like that, maybe MIT and places like that, engineering schools, they probably have different processes in place than institutions like University of Chicago that's been a little bit more biotech heavy and basic science research heavy. So, you know, I think it's going to be very unique to the individual institution. What I will say is that I think what I've learned is that I certainly wouldn't want to do this myself and try to make these negotiations with the university or, or try to understand how to negotiate a license back from the university without help, you know, certainly uh, legal help and getting experience from other people who've done this before has really been super, super invaluable for us because, you know, we have heard horror stories of, of other companies that, you know, just get taken advantage of and the institution takes everything from them and, you know, they own the intellectual property, obviously, but then they take a huge amount of the company itself. And, you know, if that happens, then the company may not succeed. There may, may be not, not enough of an impetus for them to, to move forward because there isn't going to be enough of a backside profit. So I think it, it works both ways. Obviously, the institution wants us to succeed because, you know, they will make money at the end of the day. But it's also prestigious for the, the institution to have, you know, entrepreneurs and people that actually take ideas to market. I think what allows JP and I to work really well together is that we really don't have egos and we also are very good about realizing what we don't know. And so, like, I think as JP said, we know we don't really have any experience negotiating a license back. So we know that we need to rely on people who are experienced with that. And so I think recognize your limitations has been very key for us. As you said, we're not engineers. So we know we need really strong engineers to sort of help that component. But overall, you know, we know the parts that we can help with, which is obviously is the science and driving that part. Did you guys have any mentors outside of the institution? I, well, I mean, Oz, I'm sure you did because you came from Stanford. They have the whole Stanford Biodesign program. You have Rusty Hoffman there who's cranking out companies. And and then on the IC side, I, I think of interventional cardiology and interventional radiology, just out of any specialty, tons of innovators, right? Todd Brinton comes to mind with Shockwave. And so were there people that you guys already knew that you could reach out to, to bring in to answer these questions? I think obviously what gives us a leg up over our quote unquote competitors and or, you know, aka industry is that we are insiders ourselves. So that's our strength is that we are insiders and we've talked to everybody, you know, including the people that you've just mentioned, aside from that great innovators like Rami Oklu, 
Jafar Golzarian, you know, all these people, which again, just being an, an IR and you know how the community is so friendly. And I mean, these are giants of our field, but they're also like the most laid back. And it's been invaluable because every every single person we talk to, you know, we just met with Ramsey El-Hakim recently, who has a, a, a Venus Stent company. And, you know, we are learning an insane amount every single time we, we meet with these people. And, and we just add that to our sort of knowledge base and then, you know, keep plotting forward. Yeah, to sort of take your analogy of the parent and the child, I think some of these relationships are also a little bit paternalistic, maternalistic in that they don't want to see us make the same mistakes that either they've seen or they've done. And, and, you know, I've been really surprised in a good way that most of the people we've talked to have given us real advice on how to avoid stepping into to huge pits and, and making the same mistakes that they did. So, you know, reaching out to the community and, and your peers and, and others that, that have done this before, like Oz said, it's just been incredibly useful and valuable for us. And we have a long way to go. So, you know, we're, we're going to be able to have our plenty of mistakes on our own to tell the next group of people coming through, you know, what to avoid. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, without naming names, was there anybody that uh, gave you bad advice or was like, that's a horrible idea. Like, you know, you're going to get crushed. I mean, did you guys have any experiences like that? No, everyone has told us that everything we've ever done is perfect. So no, no, totally. Yeah. Aaron, I mean, of course. Yeah. There's, there've been people that have said, you know, why are you wasting your time with this? You know, thrombectomy is the future. Every device is going to be a thrombectomy device. And, you know, we have to just sort of trust our gut and trust our instinct that lytics work. Uh, they have a place in this field and and that, you know, the pendulum is probably going to swing back a little bit towards lytics, you know, as newer devices, better devices come out, more data is generated. Obviously, we have some big trials that are coming up with PE Tract, uh, you know, run by Akisista out of NYU, as well as HyPytho, obviously coming out, you know, from Boston Scientific. The data is just going to explode in the next few years. And, you know, we think because of that, the craze to develop more and more and more thrombectomy devices may get cooled off just a little bit. So, you know, we, we want to position ourselves to have sort of the best lytic device that can actually capture this data in a way that can add to both sides of the equation. You know, we want to be able to both say we can treat patients well with lytics, but we also want to say, you know, maybe not everyone is a good lytic candidate. And, you know, if you give a couple milligrams or 10 milligrams of TPA and you're not seeing any benefit, maybe those patients are the ones you should actually stop. It's not working. Maybe it's too chronic. Maybe we should actually reconsider a thrombectomy approach or a surgical approach or something like that. That reminds me, before I forget, I imagine yours is much lower profile than a thrombectomy device. Is six French, what are we talking about here? We're aiming to come in between seven and eight French. My guess is we're going to probably be in the eight French range to sort of accommodate all those features that we discussed. That's great. Yeah, that's very low profile, which is fantastic. I think like what you were saying, John, it's just, it'd be great to have that as a first option before you jump to thrombectomy if, like I said, if the patient's presentation fits. Um, and just having options, right? Having good options that, that actually work. And if you have the data to back it up, I mean, that's that's the key thing, just collecting that data from the get-go. Yeah, you know, and, and I, I don't think that it's going to be one or the other, honestly, in the future. I think there's going to be a lot of cases where, you know, doing both approaches may be the way to go, either doing thrombectomy analytics together and, you know, either apart or maybe a device that can do both. And, you know, we've considered a lot of those things in, in the design of our device as well, and that, you know, there may be a, a way to actually do thrombectomy and thrombolysis together. And we think that actually could be the best of both worlds where maybe you can you can remove the big proximal stuff right off the bat, try to stabilize the hemodynamics immediately and then and then infuse lytics to clean up the rest and, and use that feedback and those sensors to kind of try to understand exactly how much to give. 
So I don't think it's going to be one or the other. I think there's going to be patients that clearly are thrombectomy candidates that need that stabilization immediately to remove those big clots and stabilize them. Uh, there's going to be patients on the other end of the spectrum that are just not thrombectomy candidates because they're not going to tolerate large bore access or you know they have a lot of more segmental, subsegmental clot that just isn't approachable from a thrombectomy approach. But I think there's a huge population of patients that's that's in between there and that that will benefit from you know a combination therapy or or a device that can do a little bit of both. Have you guys had any setbacks in terms of design where you're like, ah, oh, it's perfect, and then you try it in the animal model or something like that, and it's just something's not right? Anything that you had to go back to the drawing board with along the line? Yeah, it's uh, very Silicon Valley like, and I don't know if you've seen the show. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, you know, I I will say, you know, to be positive, it's actually pretty surprising how much whatever you think of an engineer actually can make. For the most part, engineers really just need the clinical guidance to say, oh, is that what you want? And they're like, oh, yeah, we can make that. That's really easy. But certainly we have we have gone through design iterations and we are have what JP probably gone through at least three or four design iterations of our device. We're not usually held back by, oh, we can't do that. Some of the things have been actually more like what you were asking, Aaron, about design profile. So like to get everything squeezed into a seven French or eight French, maybe we need to give this up or maybe we need to give that up kind of thing. But overall, it it has been relatively smooth. There have been always sort of setbacks. I would say that especially in this current era, the main issues have been COVID with uh, supply chain issues, you know, getting Mm -hmm. nitinol takes three months and then you get the nitinol and then you have to do whatever. And then, you know, then you have to wait on the mold. And and so that has sort of delayed things, but we've never really had any major design setbacks, fortunately. I'm thinking about our our first animal lab, Oz, where, you know, we had spent really at that point, probably a year actually developing sort of our first prototype. And we were, you know, super excited, you know, texting all the night before, this is going to be great. This thing's going to be awesome. I can't wait to try it. And, you know, we get in there and within literally like five minutes, the thing is broken, blood pouring out the back. <laughs> like it's a complete, oh, you know, it's a complete yeah. disaster, right? And yeah. it's sort of like, you know, you have to, I guess, understand that it's a process, you know, and, it, and the first prototype taught us a lot about, okay, this is going to be a little harder than we thought. You know, we have to spend some time thinking about how this is going to work. This is going to work. And it was just funny that, you know, we, we were sort of assuming that our first prototype was going to be close to the end of the end of the road, but geez, not, not at all. That's a great segue to like, where are you guys at today? I know we're preclinical still because not everybody who's listening really knows the device roadmap. So tell us where we're at today and where you guys see, like, what's the vision for, for me to get this in my hands in the future? Yeah, we're fortunate to be, I guess, in a field where, like, as I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of innovation, there's a lot of devices. And what that means for us is that the regulatory pathway will hopefully be a little bit more straightforward in that there are predicate devices, there are other devices that are similar enough that, you know, we can go along a regulatory pathway called a 510K pathway, where essentially, you know, we aren't required to do a a large human study before approval. You know, we can use the data that others have generated for approval of the device uh, without doing that. So, you know, for us, we're now in the animal study phase. We're actually going to do a, a third animal study in just, geez, another week or so. Um, where we hope to be getting close to a design freeze, you know? So at that point, if we can demonstrate that we are able to, to get all the features of the, of the device where we want them, then we hope to be able to start, you know, the regulatory process and get the 510K submission going. You know, we hope to have this on the market, you know, by mid-2024. That's our goal at this point. So another 18 months from now. 
obviously we're adding time from what we actually would like to see. We'd like to see this on the market at the end of 2023, but you know, realistically, we think probably mid 2024 is when our device will be ready for prime time. Has that changed compared to like when you guys first started? And you're like, ah, oh, you know, 2023 is the year for us. Has stuff been pushed back, or is this according to plan? To be honest with you, I, I think again another reason JP and I work well together is, is we are sort of workaholic type people, and we like to quote unquote just get stuff done. We don't like to let things linger. So yeah, there's been certain times where we're waiting on the engineers to get back to us. But overall, I think we're generally pleased with the trajectory that we're at. And we also understand that you can really only go as far as the money takes you. And so one of the great things right now we have going for us is we've gotten a, an SBIR grant, which is basically an NIH-sponsored grant for small businesses that are doing innovative research. And so we're on that grant right now. We're hoping to apply for a phase two, which would really give us all the money we need to sort of get us to that FDA approval pathway. So if you were to tell me when we started this that we would have a product in the market mid-2024, I think JP probably would agree. I'll take that any day of the week. I mean, that's a pretty relatively quick turnaround, I think, um, especially with those programs we went through. They said, don't expect to get your thing on the market. You know, it takes at least five years kind of thing. Yeah. You know, and you compare the medical device market to obviously the pharmaceutical development process. And there were companies and teams that were doing that in some of our accelerator programs. And, you know, they're talking a 10-year timeline, you know, and to be talking about two and a half, three years, I think we're fortunate to be in a field where, where we can get things moving that quickly because that's not the case for most of the biotech field. Yeah, that sounds pretty amazing, actually, when you think about it. Well, anything else, guys, that I'm leaving out before we wrap up here? We're getting close to the hour. No, Aaron, I thank you for, for allowing us to talk about our journey a little bit. We're super excited about taking this from an idea just two years ago now to having some buzz and excitement around it. You know, we were at uh, ISET just a couple of weeks ago and talking to a lot of people and, you know, people are starting to sort of know a little bit about us and, and that that's an exciting feeling. Uh, we're starting to feel like take off a little bit and get some uh, excitement around the idea and around the potential product here. So stay tuned. You know, we're going to, we have a good team. We have a good group of people. We're going to be getting some data out there in the, in, in some journals soon, uh, showing some efficacy of the different components of our device and hopefully get some human data in the next couple of years. So thanks again. We really appreciate your inviting us today. Yeah. I imagine you guys are going to be putting your marketing caps on here soon. What kind of stuff are you guys doing? Like what, when you were at ISAT, did you guys have a, a booth or are you guys just kind of talking to people? Kind of talking to people. It's a little bit early. I'll be the chief social media officer, I think, <laughs> with <laughs> I my Twitter presence. But but um, but yeah, and I think for such an early stage company, I think we're doing a good job. Again, Incredibly appreciative of you bringing us on this podcast because obviously this is a, a good way to sort of broadcast what we're up to and what we're working on. We're also super thankful to Colleen Waters and, and HMP, who's also been super helpful. You know, they did a few recordings with us as well and, and have actually disseminated some of our literature. You know, we're fortunate to have friends and, and colleagues like yourself and, and Colleen who really are supportive of us. And again, it, it's nice to be an insider and be part of this family because it seems like maybe I'm overly optimistic, but it seems like we're a big family and everyone's really supportive of us. Yeah. It seems like physicians want to support other physicians. And I, I can imagine how, how hard it would be, you know, doing this if you weren't in the field, if you just, you were an engineer, you were an entrepreneur and you said, I have a great idea for a new device and trying to break in would be, I think really hard. I mean, it's, it's hard enough to do it if, if you know everybody in the field. And so I can only imagine how, how difficult that would be to do if you weren't. Yeah, I imagine those those engineers with a startup, they're eating ramen for, like yeah. you said, like five, <laughs> six years. I mean, and, and it's, at least we got our day jobs and yeah. you can kind of 
stay in the mix too, because that's the whole thing is like you're constantly getting feedback. Every case you do, you're getting more feedback as to, okay, how can we fine tune this? How can we hone it even more? And in that case, you're definitely have the advantage over, you know, an engineer trying to do this from the get go. But thanks guys. I really appreciate it. And looking forward to hopefully seeing you guys at a conference in the future in person and uh, exchanging hoodies. It's like, it's like, it's like exchanging hockey jerseys, you know, so- like the end of a soccer <laughs> match. We'll give you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Thanks guys. Thanks Aaron. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Ann Dang. Administrative support provided by Jim Lee Kinnebrew. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening. 